Good morning, everybody. Um, today's scripture is from Matthew 26, 57 through 75. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priest and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do you need any more witness? Look now, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophecy to us, Messiah. Who hit you? Now Peter was sitting at the courtyard, and the servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath, I don't know that man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know that man. Immediately, a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. All right. Thank you, Heather. Hey, good morning, everybody. It keeps rolling on. Meeting after meeting. Here we are. Some of you missed our business meeting. You missed a raucous time. Okay. Um, this is our passage today. Now... Um, I wrote half a sermon for this because I had to preach it at the last service and it was, uh, it was, they told me 20 minutes and I went 30, but now I'm free. The shackles are off, the chains are off, and there's nothing stopping me from going straight on through till dinner. And <clears throat> so if there's some kind of sports game you're going to miss, you're going to miss it. Now, um, so this is our passage today and, uh... Um, we're going to wrap up the book of Matthew um, by the end of August. Um, yeah, three, three years, I think. Um, and um, then we're going to spend the month of September. We're going to spend two weeks in Trinitarian theology. We're going to spend two weeks on what is the Bible. Anyways, um, we're going to talk about that. Um, and then one more, and I forget what it was. Hopefully I'll remember by then. Um, and then starting in October, we're going to start the book of Acts, and we're going to take the book of Acts. My plan so far is, and this could change literally at the drop of a hat, my, pl my plan is to take the book of Acts all the way to the point where, where Paul is in, is, in, uh, is in Corinth, 
And then pause there where he writes the letter to, to uh, the Romans and jump to the book of Romans. We're going to do the book of Romans backwards. It'll make sense later. Um, and then we're going to continue the book of Acts. So that's our next like year and a half, two year plan. We'll see how it goes. Um, yeah, God bless us, everyone. Um, so why don't we pray? And we're going we're gonna to look at this today. We're going to talk about a little bit about... Um, um, this will be a little different. We're gonna, honestly, at the end, I'm going to end this with some lessons in leadership from, from Jesus and the disciples, some really interesting things that I think you need to see um, if you are trying to lead people, if you're trying to raise children. Um, and then <clears throat> we're going we're gonna to sort of look at the pastoral advice that, that Jesus has that he's teaching through this passage. So um, let's pray, shall we? Father, we come to you. And we ask for your grace. We ask that you would awaken within us something that has fallen asleep, something that is dead. Um, I ask that you would speak to each and every one of us, um, <clears throat> right where we are, um, exactly what we need to hear. Um, may your, your spirit fall upon us, and may we um, receive wisdom and knowledge. Um, may we be able to see that what Peter is going through and Peter's actions are really no different than our own. And that if Peter can grow and become the amazing apostle that he was, then we can too. Um, and help us to see how this works. Thank you, Father, for where you've taken us from, where you're taking us to. In your name, amen. <clears throat> now, um, again, we did have our, um, our congregational meeting. I know we had one in January. You're like, you had one in January? Yes, we did. We moved our annual meeting to July so this is the only year we're going to have two in the year. Um, if you are a member, um, then uh, we would love it if you would grab a ballot. You have two weeks to fill it out. All the papers that, that we wrote about this, all of, the, all of the items are available in the folders in the back to read over. All the people we're voting on for different positions is available in the back. All those people are here this morning, too, if you would like to meet them and talk to them, except for apparently Albert, who is somewhere else, not here. Oh, well. Just email him. Find him on Facebook, Albert Stoddinger, and email him. Um, and uh, the, the budget's out there for the year. Everything you need is there. Um, if you are a member, please today grab a ballot from, from Maribel. Is Maribel in here right now? Anywhere? No, she's out there in her office working studiously because she's the one that keeps it rolling. Um, get a, a ballot from Maribel. Fill out every single thing. Even if you don't want to vote on something, just abstain from it. But we need you to pick something. Um, and then drop it in the offering box. So... That's that. Um, okay. Today, we have two parallel stories. We have two people going through the same thing. What we have is we have sort of this dichotomy that Matthew paints. Matthew is constantly painting dichotomies between two different things. Um, remember a while back, he did this with the Mount of Transfiguration. You get to the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus is there. The disciples are there. The same disciples that were in Gethsemane. Um, and two Two prophets appear on either side of Jesus, Isaiah and, uh, and Abraham, and they're there, um, and they want to linger there, and Jesus' clothes are bright white, and it's just this moment of glory and beauty, and Peter says, I want to stay here forever. We should dwell here with these people. And then when you get to Calvary, you see the exact opposite of everything that you saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. You see Jesus not in bright white clothes. You see him stripped naked and bare and in shame, not in glory and power. You see him flanked not by the two prophets, uh, the great prophets of Israel. You see him flanked by two thieves. You see, instead of Peter being there saying, let's dwell here forever, Peter has abandoned, as well as the other two disciples have abandoned Jesus. Um, everything that you see on these two mountains is opposite. 
because Matthew is communicating with his church, the Matthewan church in the first century. And Matthew is telling them, the glory of God is not found in these high lofty places in the world. When everything looks powerful and good and bright and shiny, that is not actually where God, God's glory is revealed. God's glory is revealed on Mount Calvary um, at the very bottom. And you look and you see the greatest um, suffering that you can imagine. And you look at the face of that suffering and it is God in the flesh there, present, going through it for you and with you. This is how Matthew communicates constantly. He creates a dichotomy between Judas and Peter. He creates dichotomies between um, those outside the city of Jerusalem, the beggars and the blind, and those inside the city, the rich and the Pharisees. Um, He's doing this all the time because he wants you to read the text or he wants his church to read the text and ask, which one am I in this story? This passage is no different. You have Jesus um, on the night he was betrayed, he is arrested. You have master and he has students and they've all fled. However, Peter is watching Jesus from afar and he's following him. Um, and while Jesus is being interrogated by the priests at the temple, Peter is avoiding interrogation outside of the temple. So we read this and we see this. It says in verse 57, those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance. And so he's He's following, he's watching what's going on, what's happening, right up to the courtyard where Jesus is being interrogated of the high priest. And he entered and he sat down with the guards to see the outcome. It's as if he's sort of incognito. He's sitting with the guards. He can see Jesus and he can see what's going on there. He's observing his rabbi, his teacher. He's observing how it's done. He's observing someone endure every place where he failed because he's the teacher. And, and Peter's the student, and he's watching Jesus succeed everywhere where Peter, where, where Peter failed. I have one terrible drawing for today, and it looks like this. It's very simple. That's what this is about. That's what Matthew is trying to communicate. You have, Ma- you have Peter following the flesh, and you have Jesus following the spirit. And here's the thing about how this works. Um, to the first Christians, Jesus was not just... Um, the face of God, the ultimate expression of God. Um, in other words, when you look at Jesus, you know exactly what God is like in every way. You know what he, what he looks like, what he would do, how he loves, how he, how he moves through the world. Jesus is not just the perfect divine image of God. Jesus is also the perfect image of a human, of a human being, of the Imago Dei, the image of God. Um, as you and I were created to be. When you look at Jesus, you can see what a perfect human is supposed to look like. Um, For the early Christians, this was vitally important because as you're watching Jesus, you're seeing him as early humans, as, as Adam was supposed to be. Paul actually calls him the second Adam. That's what he calls Jesus. The first Adam has fallen. There is a new one that is put in the same place Adam was supposed to be in. He's ruled by God and he's over creation. He's under God and over creation. Um, and Jesus is, is God incarnate in the flesh. And, and he's sort of in the ancient times, the people wanted their human king, and so God accommodates that and gives them a human king. But God always intended for his people to be led directly by God. And so in Jesus, you have both. You have the human king, and you have the people ruled by God. And so Jesus is under God and over creation, and he is the restored, the perfect human being, where people were meant to be. And so when they look at Jesus, they see everything that they were supposed to be and everything that they were supposed to do. This is why I talk so much about 
what's called Christoformity, the idea of your life conforming to the life of Jesus. Jesus was perfectly led by the Spirit in every way. He allowed himself to be, to, he submitted himself to the Father and he submitted himself to the Spirit of God to be led by the Spirit of God. He was not being led by the flesh as we are. And everything that he did was displaying this. And so what Matthew is doing here is he's showing us Peter's led by the flesh, Jesus is led by the Spirit. And then Matthew takes these two people led by different things and runs them through the exact same path and shows how they made different choices. Um, there are so many things that are the same. Both were in the garden, confronted by men with weapons of violence, and they reacted differently. Peter, like we talked about last week, draws his sword and swings and strikes and attacks um, to protect the ones he loves, protect himself using violence. Jesus rebukes him, puts the sword away, heals the one who has come to kill him, to harm him, to, to arrest him. Um, both are now quizzed over their identity. Someone comes to Jesus uh, the, the Sanhedrin, and they come to Jesus, and they are filing false accusations against him and trying to declare, who are you? Who do you think you are? What, what do you believe about yourself? Here's what we think about you. And then Peter is outside, gathered around with a group of people, some guards, and apparently some women around the fire, and they're talking, um, and they're grilling him on who he is. And the way that they react is different. Um, and we'll get to that in a minute. Um, both are recognized as Galilean outsiders, um, they knew where Jesus was from. Um, they, they, they knew his story. Um, Peter, when he, when he talks to these people around the fireplace, they recognize his accents from Galilee. He speaks a mix, uh, mostly um, Aramaic, so when he speaks Greek or whatever, he's going to have an accent. And so this woman hears him talking, and she says, you're from Galilee. I recognize your accent. You're one of his disciples, aren't you? And he instantly gets defensive and he says, no, I don't know the guy. I'm not with the guy. It has nothing to do with me. He's terrified of violence, of getting hurt. Uh, he's terrified of being associated with someone who is not going to win. Um, both have witnesses against them. They're both, one of them is actually, they're accusing Peter of something that is actually true. Jesus is being accused of things that are not true. Um, they both evade answering questions. Jesus, instead of defending himself against false accusations, remains silent, and he does not defend himself. He's practicing the spiritual discipline of silence that we have talked about before. Um, Peter himself, though, is trying to correct who they think he is, and, he's, and, and they're telling truth, and he's lying about them. Um, both are guilty by association. Jesus is guilty of, guilty of associating um, with, with prostitutes and, and beggars and unclean people and Gentiles. Um, and Peter is guilty of associating with this, um, this Messiah who they think is leading a rebellion. Um, and both are subjects of fulfilled prophecy. Um, their parallels are stunning. But their reactions in all these situations are different. Peter lies about someone who's speaking the truth. And then we have Jesus in the temple. And, and we have one paragraph of, G, of, of what they're saying to Jesus. And then we have another paragraph of what they're saying to Peter. And it's like the same thing is happening twice with different reactions. The high priest, in verse 62, the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And he says nothing. He has no desire to mold their view of him. This is a spiritual discipline that a lot of Christians since this day have taken upon themselves, not trying to mold how they look in front of the world around them, instead being faithful, being a single person all the time and allowing the chips to fall 
where they may. Um, Peter swears this oath and pronounces a curse to deny it. It says, it says that he began to call down curses and he swore to them and said, I don't know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed and reminded him um, that Jesus said that he was going to do this. Um, after that, um, we, this, both stories end um, sort of in the same dramatic fashion. Um, you have Peter who now is weeping after hearing the rooster crow. He's weeping. Tears are running down his face. And Jesus actually ends up with spit running down his face from the people around him who are beating him and spitting on him. It says they spit in his face and struck him with their fists and others slapped him. And he said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Now, the same path, one led by the spirit, one led by the flesh. I'm going to pause here for a second and and go back to last week. Um, uh, so last week I taught on, on nonviolence, on ancient Christian nonviolence, the practice of the first Christians in the first three centuries where they refused to take part in any kind of violence at all. And as Tertullian would say, in disarming Peter, um, Jesus disarmed all Christians. And so the early Christians lived this way. And this, of course, sparks a lot of conversation. Um, and I received a lot of questions and thoughts, and we've had a lot of deep conversations this week, and it's been awesome. Um, and... We live in a time, the reason this causes so much conversation, in the ancient time it wouldn't, it would have been obvious that this is how you're supposed to live. But it causes a lot of conversation today because we live in a time that is so separated from the early church and from that world that we cannot imagine that we would ever hold to any principle um, in such a high regard that we would die for it, except for the love of our family, the love of ourselves, and the love of our tribe. Um, It is hard for us to fathom, like our base foundational principle, the thing which we live by and hold in higher esteem than anything else in our day is the longevity of ourselves and of those we love and of those like us. That is our underlying principle for everything that we do. We find it absolutely tragic when anyone dies of anything other than old age calmly in their sleep in bed. That is the only thing that is acceptable and any other thing and any other death that happens before that time is tragic and unacceptable. And I understand that. And I affirm that. It's tragic. Death is a tragic thing. Um, But in the ancient life, in the ancient world, for the ancient Christians, their foundational principle was not the longevity of their existence. Their lifespan maxed out around 35 years old. Okay? I am older than most of the people in the Bible. I lived a longer life than the vast majority of them did already. In the ancient world, if you were to actually live to about 50, you were an old person. You were lucky to make it to that age, and it likely meant that you were rich, and you were able to avoid all of the tragedies that the average person endured and went through, that you were able to keep yourself clean and abstain from people carrying diseases and stuff like that in war and escape these things. Um, But by and large, life was very, very short, Most people didn't live to their mid-30s. And so while life was sacred, it was short. So the foundational principle, the thing which they held in the highest regard, was not the longevity of their life. It was never going to be long anyways. It was obedience to God, and it was the vocation into which God had placed them. That was the thing by which they made every decision that they made. Um, If you read the intertestamental period books uh, from the Apocrypha, like the books of Maccabees, you read the struggles of the Jewish people following God through intense persecution. And you read them 
um, getting conquered by their enemies and standing there with their families and their enemies trying to dissolve their Jewish identity and telling them, eat this non-kosher food or die. Work on the Sabbath or die. Shave your head, cut your beard or die. Um, Do not circumcise your children or you will die. We will kill you. Where they're trying to erase them as God's people. And they believed that if the world was ever going to be set to rights, it would only happen through the covenant that God had made with God's people. They had to remain a separate people. Obedience to God was primary for all of life to be restored, for things to be made right again. So while life was short, obedience to God was the greatest thing. And as you read in the text, what you begin to see is is these people refusing to go along with it and remaining obedient to God and being slaughtered. And it literally describes um, mothers watching their children killed, and then they are killed as their, as their husbands watch, and then they are killed. And the descriptions are brutal and terrifying, but the devotion that you read, what you begin to see is their life base upon which they build every decision that they make was obedience to God and remaining faithful to their king. We live in a different world where we cannot fathom that obedience to God and the principles by which Jesus is leading us would ever be worth dying for. And so that is why these conversations are so difficult to have. It is, and we must admit that. Our lives are very different than theirs were. And so what we have in Matthew 26 is Matthew laying out a dichotomy for you. Here's what it looks like to be led by the Spirit. Here's what it looks like to be led by the flesh. Peter and Christ, the perfect human. And you are meant to watch the story through the eyes of Peter. Now, Each one of the disciples fled Jesus, and they all, I'm sure, had their own individual story of what happened to them that night. I would love to read those stories. We are given the story of Peter, the one who talked the most, the one who seemed to get it the most, the first one to proclaim, Jesus is the Messiah, and then he failed. And so as you read the book of Luke, it's fascinating. Luke gives so much detail. Luke 22, verse 60, Peter replied, I don't know what you're talking, man, I don't know what you're talking about. He's basically denying knowing Christ. Um, And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. They made eye contact with him. When Peter fails to stay faithful to following King Jesus, turns and looks right at him, eye contact. And then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. He knew that he had failed. Okay, now... If you want to be any kind of leader, pastor, if you want to be any kind of, if, if you want to be a good parent, if you want to be a teacher, if you want to disciple people, if you want to raise up people around you to be godly people, um, if you want to be any kind of leader in any way, there's a couple lessons that you have to learn from watching Jesus with his disciples, and they matter greatly. Um, so there's two things in particular that I wanted to lay out here um, and just make them very simple for you. Um, the first one is obvious. You have no control over those you were teaching. None. You cannot control what they do. You cannot control the decisions that they make. This is important to understand because of this. Jesus was the greatest teacher ever to walk the earth. He took these boys on a three and a half year intensive where he lived with them and taught them Everything that he knew about God. 
and he showed them how it works. He did miracles. He reconciled people who hated each other. He brought someone back from the dead. He did everything you could possibly do to teach these boys what it means to be God's people, to be the presence of God in the world. But when it ultimately came to it, they failed. The greatest teacher to ever walk the planet, every one of his students failed. I want you to ponder that. Um, the outcome is out of your control. You have no control over where this ends up. Your only job is to remain faithful and to teach. But at the same time, you have to understand that instruction isn't everything. It isn't everything. It can't do the job on its own. There's this thing called, uh, this term called, in education called outcome assessment. If you're a teacher, you probably use this outcome assessment. How do, we, how do we determine whether or not this person who's claiming to be a teacher is actually capable of teaching these people? Um, what can you show me to show that you're a good teacher, that you've done it? Um, and oftentimes people throw out tests and they show, well, here's some tests the children have taken to show that they get this and they understand this and blah, blah, blah. Um, the, the problem is that tests don't determine whether or not someone has actually taken this inside themselves and actually lives out what they're understanding. Behavior is, is how we measure whether or not people are actually understanding and getting a topic, a teaching, um, an understanding of the subject. Behavior is the most important thing. Um, I know biblical studies students who learn about hermeneutics in the classroom. Um, I know biblical scholars who have absolutely shipwrecked their lives absolutely destroyed their life. They know everything about the Bible and its context and how it was written, how it was put together. Um, but they cheat on their spouse. They're addicted to various substances. Um, they hate people. They, they do not represent Jesus in this world. But they have all the intellectual knowledge that can possibly be gathered and they have access to all of that. And they maybe even teach other people. I, I had a, a professor, I'm not going to say his name because some of you have, uh, he literally wrote a massive study Bible that I, I see people using all the time, but he was one of my professors years ago, um, and he spent day in and day out studying the Bible, studying the Bible, studying the Bible at his desk, and one day, his wife walks in and looks at him and says, I'm done. And he goes, what's wrong? She says, you never leave this room. All you ever do is study this Bible, study the, you don't even know me anymore. You don't, love, you don't know anything about your family. You have ignored us for decades studying the Bible. And she packed up and she left. Instruction, information, is not actually the best way to understand everything. What we're doing here is important, but it's less important than if, if, it, ever, if, it, does, if it doesn't translate into anything. Um, Apparently, instruction alone wouldn't work with the disciples either. There had to be another way of getting the message into them. Peter especially needed to learn the hard way. Um, and this story specifically focuses on Peter and what he did after he ran away. Um, the greatest teaching, it turns out, and this is, this is point number two, the greatest teaching that Jesus could possibly teach was a life faithfully lived to the very end. It was not his words that would ultimately change them. It was his faithfulness. And so the second thing I need you to learn is demonstration is more effective than instruction. Um, it wasn't until the cross where Peter follows and he's watching Jesus stay faithful and not respond with violence, not respond with calling down armies, not respond in, in any way that he obviously could have responded. 
And he's obedient and faithful to God at great cost to himself. That is when things finally click with Peter. What we know about Peter is that after he sees Jesus on the cross and he experiences someone, a perfect human, staying perfectly faithful to the very end at great cost to himself, whose baseline was not longevity of their life, but whose baseline was obedience to God, that is when Peter's life completely changed and we know that for the rest of Peter's life, he was absolutely one person and had lived with integrity and was faithful to the things of God. And we know from church history that, that when Peter finally died, he was a martyr. He was crucified. And while they were getting ready to crucify him, he begged them, don't crucify me like Jesus. Turn me upside down because I'm not worthy to die like my Christ. And he literally died hanging upside down on a cross. Apparently, actions and faithfulness lived out before your students before those you love, is the greatest teacher that you could ever have, that they could ever see. The faithfulness, this, I mean, this is why the cross is so powerful. When you tell the story of the cross, people connect with it. They understand it. Someone who's faithful to something at great cost to themselves. Because the faithfulness, this is why the martyrs are so important too. The faithfulness of the martyr uh, to never be a different person, even in the face of suffering, will continue to teach people for generations. Your words to your children, can, they may teach them while they are with you. But your faithfulness to a single way, a single path, even at great sacrifice in the face of evil, will not just teach your children everything that they need to know about following Christ and about living in this different way. It will also teach everyone around you and it will teach them for generations as they tell your story over and over and over and over. As you become an inspirational story that is told to people who are faced with the same plight. The stories of the martyrs have always been important. Far more is caught than taught. More life-changing are the stories of the faithful poor than the philanthropy of the rich. The ones who are faithful, even with their mouths shut, are the greatest teachers amongst us. And we watch them with our mouths open. More is learned from the story of a martyr than the sermon of the theologian. Far more. And what is required of us what we learn from Peter, what we see in Christ, is as Eugene Peterson puts it, what we need is a long obedience in one single direction. One thing being our baseline, and at no point looking for reasons to take this off and to put something else on for the sake of longevity, for the sake of safety and comfort. We are the people of God who live differently in this world. That is all we are called to be, you are not called to a long life. You are called to a faithful life. And if the world is ever going to be a peaceful place, if this reconciliation, if this great work that God is doing is ever going to be manifested in our communities, it will only be manifested when we are able to actually live up to it, even in the face of great cost to ourselves. Your faithful response to the world around you is the single greatest teacher that the world can ever have. My prayer for you this morning is that you will learn to be one person, to live with integrity. The word integrity is a word that simply means, it comes from the word integer, it means one. You will be one person all the time. 
never looking to be someone else in any particular situation, committed to one way, one thing, one king, Jesus. Never sacrificing that allegiance to any other king. The word faith itself comes from the ancient word that was used to describe allegiance to a king, pistis. That is the word, allegiance to Christ above all else. So that's my prayer for you this morning, that, a single, the sing, that single responses, um, that single response is a life form to look like Christ Jesus. The only thing that you were called to do is to become more and more like Christ in this life. You are not called to accomplish anything great or impressive or to gather large crowds of people or to move, to move massive groups of people. You were called to be the presence of God, the peaceful loving, merciful, forgiving presence of God, a constant presence in this world that they need you to be. Why don't we take communion? Our communion servers, you guys can go and gather the elements. As we take communion today, let us remember that it is not in the intellectual words, it is not in the sermons, it is not in the books of the theologians that we find the truths of God, it is in the actions. Communion is the first step in taking those sort of ideas, those teachings, and doing something tangible and physical to get you involved in what God is doing in the world. It's an outward sort of exercise. There's two elements. There's, there's, there's bread and there's wine. It's the body of Christ broken for you. It's the blood of Christ poured out for you. And we take some time, we pray, we ask God to center ourselves on him and his death. And we all come to the same table, no matter how holy or how sinful you are, we all receive the exact same thing. God is not a respecter of persons. We are his children. We are his brothers and sisters. And so you come to the table, you take a piece of bread, you dip it in the wine, and you eat it. And you do it in remembrance of Jesus and his sacrifice for us. And then we rejoice. Let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you for this place and these people. Guide us into your future. Let us be the people that you want us to be. Pray all of this in your name. Amen.